Thank you all. I'm very glad you're here. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I, I'm told we're outselling the fatherhood panel down the road, so just <laughs> so you know, we're not competitive or anything, but, you know, women know how to show up. I, I, we're, I, we're here today because we have a really interesting conversation to have, and one of the things I want to tell you is it's a conversation you probably, if you're in this room, you've had it before. It's about where we go now as women and where our daughters go next as women. Uh, don't let the Ivy League throw you off. That's just an idea of what we have been able to break through, but there's so much more. And we're going to talk about that with a really interesting group of people. You just met Ann Mosley, who before her time at, at the um, before her time at the Aspen Institute has also been at the WK. Kellogg Foundation, where she developed the family economic security and civic engagement portfolios. She runs Ascend, which is a policy program at the Institute, and it's a hub for breakthrough ideas, of which we're going to get some. Next to her is Terry McCullough. Terry McCullough is director of New Ceiling, the full participation project at the Clinton, I think it's the Hillary Bill Chelsea Clinton Foundation. And um, and you may have seen actually some coverage, some coverage of this a few weeks ago when we saw both Hillary, Hillary and Chelsea talking about these issues. They are also they're not they're interested in where women are not only in America but also globally and how we build the bridges to full civic, political, all kinds of participation and how to build on what we can do for women entrepreneurs. And the guy, the bold man at the table. <laughs> Yay. That's Bill Bynum. He's the chief executive officer of HOPE, which stands for HOPE, which stands for, which stands for? HOPE Enterprise Corporation and yes. HOPE Credit Union. It does. Okay. I got that right. I just thought maybe it was an acronym of some kind. But he was also the founding CEO of the Enterprise Corporation of the Delta in Jackson, Mississippi. He, is, he has been part of the North Carolina Rural Economic Development Center. And he's going to bring the real world part of this into it because everybody in this room is in a position to at least see where the ceiling is and then try to crack through it. But there are a lot of women who don't even know that there are ceilings, don't even aspire to crack through them. And we want to talk about all those issues, not just what would be great for the people in this room who are privileged enough to be in Aspen on a lovely summer Sunday, but also the women and the next generation of women who have to do the next thing. I, I want to I start by bringing you up to date on a little conversation I had a couple of months ago in California with Sheryl Sandberg, who completely riveted everybody by advising us we ought to be leaning in which I have to say, I thought the book was actually better than the debate about the book. But in the end, it still raised the same questions which we all have, which is, how do we do it? How do we get to the next level? How do we break in? And for those of us who feel like we've been leaning in so far that we almost fell off the chair over these several years, what next? So I'm wondering, I want to start by asking everybody at the table, starting with you, Anne, the women you deal with, the women you talk to, even you, do you get tired of this leaning in thing? as if it's somehow up to us? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think the lean-in, I give Cheryl credit, She the, the dialogue exploded, and I think um, that's fantastic. But I think the lean-in part is hard because there's women who have made it who are leaning in, and they're struggling, but there's a lot of women for a long, long time who've been leaning in, and it's not just a matter of pushing or trying harder. There's a structural element to this, 
Um, one quick thing. This uh, a summer ago, we were part of the Shriver Report, working with Maria Shriver, um, talking about where are we um, in honor of her father's legacy 50 years after the, um, the war on poverty. And we went out and talked to low-income women, mothers primarily, across all race and ethnicity, and also to the next generation of young women in middle and high school. And what these women talked about was, um, you know, they look for re um, respect. They were interested in um, dying to become more money and market savvy. They knew about education, and they really, two things that really um, stuck with me was um, their desire, their deep desire for respect. And at the end of the day, though, when they talked about whether they would make it, they said, that's on my shoulders. So I'm talking to, I'm listening to a Latina mother in Denver, Colorado, raising two children on her own, working two jobs. And she's thinking, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm thinking, how am I going to be able to not only struggle through myself, but how am I going to ensure that it's going to be better for my children? And that's on me. And I just feel like there's a lot that women are carrying. And so how do we tap that strength and that resilience at the same time, really think about the structures and the institutions. Because if it's the individual against the structure, that's a really hard fight for, for almost all women, but especially for women who are struggling up the ladder. Terry, that's really interesting, because that suggests on some level that women already figured out that it was on them, that they didn't really need to be told, but they just need this, the tools to figure out what is next. Well, it's so interesting, Gwen, because it, this leaning conversation was fantastic in really exposing a lot of people to the reality that women have this confidence gap in terms of their feelings and their ability to do a job. But there is that internal pressure. But as Anne said, there's also this external structural limitation in so many ways, whether it's legislative, whether it's societal, that present, prevents women really from reaching these ceilings. For many women, the ceilings are very low. For some quite a bit higher. Yeah, we need a lot of tools. And part of what we're doing with the No Ceilings Project is collecting a lot of data on the status of women so we can then determine, okay, what progress have we made over the last 20 years? What are the greatest challenges that remain? And then how do we start to solve those challenges for full participation? What do you know so far? <laughs> well, we are just collecting the data. I mean, there's some things that we, we know already. And this is a global project, but there is a lot of emphasis on uh, the U.S., of course. We know across the world women have had more access to primary education than ever before. Um, it's that what happens next that is a challenge. We talk a lot about, uh, Anna and I have talked about how to leverage that educational issue. Certainly we talk about it in the developing world, how are we really investing in education domestically as well. We know that women have increased their political participation not nearly as much as we would like. So there's a lot more that we really want to look at and think about, but there are a couple of pieces that weren't elements in play 20 years ago. Uh, one is technology and how people are using that either as a tool or how women have access or lack of access. Another is the private sector and how many corporations have become much more involved over the last 20 years in investing in women either internally or philanthropically. We're, we're going to go through all of that. I want to ask Bill to pick up on an interesting point you just raised, which is, is the question about access or execution? Women getting access to these tools, access to education, or what happens after they've gotten access to it? It's like we were, a couple of us were talking about affirmative action last night. It's one thing to walk in the door. It's another thing what you do once you get through the door. No, it's, it's interesting, and uh, first I'd say thank you for letting me be the odd man in. <laughs> um, I don't profess to be an expert, but I do work in a region where um, we are still struggling with many historical 
gaps. Uh, there's a lot of, um, if we talk about uh, 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 the income inequality, wealth inequality, it plays out quite dramatically in Mississippi and in the Mid-South. And uh, we run a financial institution where over half of our members are women. And it strikes me how often the stories of women coming in, 37% um, of our members have not been in the banking system before, have been unbanked. Uh, and even though we are, uh, the banking system is changing, it is still the most um, prominent way to climb the economic ladder. If you're trying to support your family, uh, you're eventually going to want to see them in a home. Um, outcomes for children in households are far better than kids who are um, in, um, uh, in rental apartment. Or, and so we are, we see so many stories of women who, 60% of women in Mississippi are unbanked. You know, that's six out of 10. And that's just not a recipe for success. We've been able to get women into the banking system as well as um, 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 people, who unbanked, um, people who are unbanked of all uh, with both genders, and but it disproportionately uh, impacts women of color. Yeah. Uh, women of color, uh, if you measure any any indication of economic and social well-being, fall behind uh, the rest of the population. And so we've been able to uh, slowly get people in the banking system. Sixty percent of our mortgages last year were to, I mean, excuse me, ninety percent of our mortgages were to first-time home buyers the large majority of those to women. And so as they are starting to, uh, as they start to build assets, then that starts to get them into a more stable position where they can then support their families. Um, being the product of a single um, family, a, a, a woman-headed household, uh, I certainly appreciate the importance that it means to those families um, as it's, the kids see education as a more viable possibility for them. Uh, when they're in a uh, in a stable household, and so there's all kinds of benefits that accrue from be, um, building assets and being in the financial system. The title of, of this panel is is the Ivy League glass ceiling panel is my way of looking at it. And when you hear the term Ivy League, you think about the highest possible level level of educational attainment. So as you begin to as we've laid out what the concerns and the challenges are. Obviously, the goal on some level is to level the playing field, haves and have-nots, access, all these things. How important, now you're, you talked about financial literacy in, in an important way, but how important is education? How would you rank that in terms of the, numbers of the things you need to do in order to begin to level that playing field? Um, two thoughts. I think one, education is obviously, you know, while I don't think there's much, you can't really say there's a silver bullet, but education works. And so that is a great tool. And one thing I think, you know, we sort of, we're a little bit uncomfortable about the title Ivy League and yeah. Glass Ceiling. And so I want to say something about that first, because I think one of the opportunities we have in front of us, especially as we sit here, privileged folk that we are in, here at Aspen at the Ideas Festival, is there is, we are stuck at the top of the power faucet. We're stuck. And then we also have a huge swath of folk that are also being left behind, whether it's the top, whether it's families in poverty or low income, which is 200% um, of the federal poverty level, which translates into a family of four, just around $43,000. So we've got this faucet issue, and then we've got, we all need to move forward. And so I think on just the, the power piece, because I, 
It's something that we don't talk about as much at Aspen, and we've been struggling with because we sort of think we need to really care about um, we're, our policies are working focused on low-income women. But just one thing to put out there is while we are seeing um, women um, and girls are really thriving in the education system right now. They are the majority of college graduates. They are almost, depending on which graduate school, but half or in some places the majority of graduate school graduates. The pipeline is primed and working. However, if you go up the food chain, we are still stuck at the Fortune 500 companies, 4.8% are women CEOs. At the, at the you know, Fortune 1000, it's 5%. Like, that's not great. Corporate America is not quite perfect yet. We also, when we look at it through the political lens right now, it's, um, and this is from the Center for American Women in Politics, but looking at the sort of political lens right now, I think it's about you know, 19% in the U.S. Congress, if you even out what you see in the House and the Senate. Can I hop in? Sure can, man. Can I hop in, though, because this is an interesting question to me, because I've always, I've, I've, when I wrote the book about breakthrough for African-American politicians, everywhere I went, a woman would stand up in the audience and say, but what about women? Are you going to do the women breakthrough? Why aren't there women breaking through? And I found, both in the corporate sphere as well as the political sphere, that the answer often was about the choices women themselves make about how they want to lead. And I wonder if that also doesn't depress those numbers. Yeah. That's, that's um, actually Olivia Golden, who is a really um, rock star economist from Harvard, has done some fantastic work that is looking in certain professions. Women do um, step out and come back in. They have different choices. I mean, how we're running economy or certain professions, does it make sense? However, that, you know, that's not a 95% answer. So I'm not willing to let folks off the hook. I also do think how we have business practices or, you know, or how you know, politics is run such that it makes you know, the best people want to serve, there's um, opportunity there. And, and so if we, you know, later on in the conversation, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about issues like child care or family leave or equal pay. And um, those aren't just issues for women, but they're really issues for women and men. Well, Terry, have at it. <laughs> so I had the great privilege of working for then Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, when President Obama, as the first bill he signed, signed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act to ensure um, that there was more time to file uh, complaints on wage discrimination. Uh, the, the women of the House uh, and the Senate, I would say, made that happen, and their, their colleagues who are the men. They uh, also tried very hard to uh, pass the Paycheck Fairness Act. Uh, we're still waiting for that to be passed in the Senate. It's a real challenge. But having worked for a leader in the Congress, I can say to you one of the most valuable things to see is, is someone like that leader will promote other women to other avenues of leadership, like heads of committees, where their influence can be held uh, as well. I just want to speak, Gwen, to your question about education and how it matters. And I would say it matters a lot, but it is not a one-size-fits-all equation here, especially in the U.S. We were a little shocked recently to see a study that said that American women with the least education and the lowest incomes have a greater chance of much shorter lives than their mothers. Their lives are shorter by about five years. Really devastating to consider, and there's no single explanation, but we think that there is a correlation both to unemployment and the economic stress yeah. of that unemployment. So it's, you know, when it, when it uh, applies to your health even, this is a really uh, uh, challenging situation. So again, we were talking about glass ceilings, we were talking about people in power and their access to education. You know, we all are not going to go to four-year colleges. We don't all have the same interests. So we need to think more broadly about 
what works for various people in terms of how they are going to succeed and how they are going to really earn a living. Three quarters of the people who earn uh, money in tipped wage jobs, which are waitresses, which are hairstylists, home health care workers, are women. That hourly wage right now is about $2.13, which is a, uh, more than a dollar less than I first, when I first encountered the minimum wage 30 years ago working at haagen So we have a lot of work to do and a lot of focus on these areas, both to educate women and men to make sure that they are able to earn, but also to really look at how we raise the minimum wage as well. Bill? I mean, education certainly matters. I think it should matter more. When in Mississippi, the median um, wages of women uh, is $4 an hour less than men. And this is just be, be despite um, the fact that women graduate at higher rates and from college at a higher rate. Um, one out of four women in Mississippi don't make enough, uh, earn enough to make ends meet. This is the same rate as um, men white men with less than a high school education. And so you think that education, and certainly I, I, would, I would hate to think about what the wage gap would be without that education uh, advantage. And so it, it's a significant issue. Um, we have, uh, I, I think some of it is explained by uh, the difference in um, uh, jobs that women find themselves in. Certainly those are, um, they, they um, those tend to pay less, um, which shouldn't be the case. Uh, marital uh, patterns, I think, uh, come into play as well. Can I ask you something, though, Bill, because I want to bounce something off of you that they both brought in, which is the idea of getting stuck at the top, this idea that, mm-hmm. yeah, they get these degrees and then there's still no place for them to go, right. or being stuck at the bottom, which is saying not getting access to education or a job that pays more than way below the minimum wage at the bottom, which is, the for you... The kind of the most more critical dilemma. Well, we work more with uh, women who are on the lower end of the economic spectrum. Um, we've got, um, again, as I said, a large percentage of the members of our credit union are female, and their ability to access basic financial services is is is, is a significantly um, uh, it's non-existent, quite frankly, to a large degree in traditional um, financial institutions in low-income communities. Uh, since the recession, banks have closed um, over 1,800 branches. 93% of them are in low-income census tracts. And in those census tracts, a large percentage of the households are headed by women. And so their ability to get the basic tools they need to support their families, to, to afford to uh, send their kids to college and provide them with, with the tools to climb the economic ladder is, 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 is constrained. I want to try a new definition out and you all to respond to it, which is, on the news hour, we spend a lot of time talking about national security issues. And national security is usually defined as war and peace and negotiation. But let's just assume for a moment that the status of these women we're talking about is a national security issue. So what is the beginning of a policy, of a policy way to address this by redefining it? as something that's just critical, not just for women, not just for their kids, but for the nation, if we were going to be secure? Well, we'd love and look forward to being on that show. Um, <laughs> I just made it up, so I don't know. I mean, I really think that the headline is, you know, what do we want our, you know, what's the 21st century economy that we want? 
because I think women, the issues we're talking about, and it's women right now we're talking about it, we could talk about it with a different frame, maybe communities of color, but we're really sort of saying we need to make sure we have an economy that um, produces value, but also does reflect, reflect our values. And, and this is something, when, when, I, when we, you know, Terry brought up the minimum wage. You know, ultimately, if someone works full time, they show up for work, it's 40 hours a week, um, should they, you know, live in poverty? Like, that's something we haven't kind of reconciled when we think about what the American dream was. You know, work hard, play by the rules, um, you know, get your education, or, or just frankly work hard. And, and I think it's exciting when we see cities like Seattle just break it out and do, you know, the $15 an hour. I think it's going to actually make Seattle sore versus the gloom and doom. Um, when we think about these issues, one of the big trends that I don't think we've talked, it hasn't gotten as much power, but women in the past 30 years have flooded to the workforce, and that's had different sort of implications. But um, just say, and so basically in 1979, 28% uh, um, of women were in the workforce. Right now, it's about 40%. And you look at mothers working full-time. Um, that was 27% back in 1979. Now it's 44% that are working full-time. Um, and it's just something that we, it's, it's, if you were to go back and say, if that surge did not happen, um, we would be 11% less in our GDP, which translates into $1.7 trillion, the combo of Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. So, and there's other ways you can slice and dice numbers. This is just one way, but women are in the economy. They are producing. They're 80% of consumer purchasing power. Like, they're a force to be reckoned with. And so I think, you know, one of the things you said earlier, Gwen, is this more important, like, looking at the power faucet and down below? And I've been very much, like, on the ground. But I've been actually sort of stepping back as I get excited about the next presidential election. Why do we have to choose, gosh darn it? I might want some different power structures, like how are we establishing these conversations, and then how are they really affecting and moving people forward? So I associate myself totally with Anne's remarks, and I would <laughs> just say, I, look, the core of this No Salience Project is the belief, it's the genesis, is Secretary Clinton's meetings with heads of state all over the world, where after various uh, security issues were discussed, she'd start talking about issues related to women. And she'd see them sort of roll their eyes or nod off and thought, this is, this is ridiculous. We know that investing in women is the right thing to do. How do we prove to everyone that it is the smart thing to do? That when we invest in women, we invest in uh, everyone and economies are more productive, the GDP increases, there are so many economic benefits. Um, I just want to mention Bill's fabulous odd man out uh, comment and say that men are integral to this conversation. We will never get any further in this conversation unless we frame it in ways of national security and investment in economy. And we get into so many rooms, I know you've been there, where we thank the three men who are in the room <laughs> for showing up. There are a lot more than three here, and I thank you all for being here. I thank the women here too. but. Women can't just be having these conversations with each other. Let's all have it together. No, I think that's right. And it's, you know, the way I look at it, obviously, we, a significant part of our business is focusing on serving women. That's because women are disproportionately underserved. But I, I look at it not as a women's uh, issue. It's, 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 a, it's a national 
um, issue. It, it affects all of us. Um, as we look at a country that's becoming more diverse, uh, as we look at a country where the income and wealth gaps are widening, if we don't take deliberate steps to close those gaps, then we're all going to lose. What, deli what deliberate steps? Again, regardless of which side of the aisle we're on, it's important that you look at a state like Mississippi where last year uh, over half of the kids um, below age 18 were non-white. Um, again, the large majority of those uh, kids are in female-headed households. When you've got 60% of women who are unbanked and can't access the financial system, that's a recipe uh, for problems down the road. We've got to equip people with the tools that they need to but, but succeed. I'm going to stop you there because you, you just said two things. You said, you know, we've got to take steps and it's a recipe for problems down the road. seems to me that in order to make it feel like a universal concern that affects men and women and boys and girls, it's, you've got to find, you've got to come up with solutions which aren't, we ought to do it because it's the right thing. Again, I, and I agree. I think that's the point I'm, I'm hoping and trying to make is that uh, regardless if it's women, African-American, men, um, we cannot, I think the federal, it was the president of the Fed of Atlanta that said uh, the, his economic monetary policy does not work when significant portions of the population are outside the, outside the financial system. And so you've got to have people participating with a stake in the game before um, policy can work at a significant level. And so some of those policies are taking, take for example, there's this, the Community Reinvestment Act that was created in the 70s to uh, require banks to reinvest in communities where they extracted profits. Well, CRA was created in a, at a time when bank branching was the model. How many, when's the last time any of you went into a bank branch? For most people, it's been six months since you went into a bank branch, but to, uh, the, the, the policies are still um, uh, enforced based on if you've got a bank branch in a community, then you've got to reinvest in that. Well, B of A, Wells, J.P. Morgan have plenty of mortgages, plenty of credit cards, extracting income from the Mississippi Delta, but they have no branches there, and, and they're not required to reinvest in the Delta. So let's, let's update policies and hold financial institutions accountable for investing in the communities where they get, where they derive profits. And many of those communities where banks have been leaving are disproportionately uh, communities of color, low-income rural communities, where there are large numbers of female-headed households. Okay, can I, um, two thoughts to add on to Bill's comments. I think one, when you're especially looking at the financial empowerment piece and, and really kind of getting into the, the market system, how are you tapping up as he's, you know, at the most grassroots level from the microenterprise up to the mezzanine and on up, like really being deliberate about what's that ladder? You know, sometimes you, there's sort of circles where you can get that early, early, small, small stage investment. And not only is the capital really important, but the networks are very important. And that could be, you could be a woman CEO who might not be going to the different sort of clubs or conversations. You know, access to that capital, access to those networks and those markets cuts across the micro, mezzanine, and macro level. 
Um, and the other piece I was going to share um, and sort of actually really um, sort of uh, build on uh, Bill's remarks is th there are demographic changes that are profound in our country, and it's like, get ahead of them, and that's exciting. I mean, when we think about the shifting demographics um, from just a, race, a racial and ethnic perspective, you know, the minority, majority, majority, minority, that's going to all turn inside out. We look at family structures, you know, get... I'm not sort of in the label business. I'm grateful my husband puts up with me. But, you know, right now, 50% of births um, occurring with millennials are going to a single parent, i.e. a mother. And, and so I actually think we have to have different conversations about how parents are engaging and are sort of in, how are we thinking about this. And my last thing, sort of throwing out some ideas here, is when we think about the next generation. So I get really excited, and I've, I've had a chance to do a fair amount of research and focus groups, and I'm talking to young men and young women where they are seeing the world and the opportunities differently. I'm going to ask you to hold on to that because cool. I do want I do want to before we go to questions I do want to talk about the future and about the ne next generation, but I don't want to miss a, a thought which has occurred to me for, through through all. How do you have these conversations? And this is a little challenging in a, 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 an environment in which we don't much talk to each other. We don't talk across party lines. Everything is easily partisan and divided. And uh, for instance, we talk about leadership and we immediately talk about Hillary Clinton, but we don't talk about Joni Ernst, who's the Senate nominee from Iowa, because Sarah Palin adopted women and promoted women who may not agree with everybody in this room necessarily, but there are leadership skills and a whole different set of political. They may not agree what we're talking about at this table, but there are women who are leading. And I, I just wonder how we make progress when it can get stuck in these basic political disagreements even if the basic understanding is okay. He said it was a great question. <laughs> and that's, you can tell it is because there's this long pause. Well, be, 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 being um, in Mississippi, living in Mississippi, I'm probably not the best to comment on the political sound. Uh, sound no, it's more about point. how to get heard, not about what the politics is. No, I, I think you're right. I, I think it's it's really critical that regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on, that we are more engaged in, um, in supporting and holding accountable candidates whose um, views align with the issues that we're talking about here. In, in, uh, the, a recent, in, in a recent uh, mayoral race in Jackson, 6% of the registered voters, made, you know, they made the decision. Uh, and, and so that's, that's I, 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 would, I would wager to say that that 6% doesn't necessarily reflect the views of the, of, of the communities, of, of, of the total community, and certainly the community that is most affected by uh, some of the more um, uh, dysfunctional policies that, that, that we're seeing. And so I think uh, it's, it's a matter of trying to get people more engaged in the political process. And that's, that, that's certainly not something that I have had the solution for, but uh, one of the things that we have found, we've got, a, our credit union has 30,000 members. We are increasingly um, providing information about issues. We're not advocating on the issues, but these are issues that are important to people who are um, facing economic challenges around housing, around payday lending. Um, I really think that um, if we did an analysis of payday lending, um, we used to be concerned. I think the, uh, there was a was legislation passed that restricted payday lending among military um, um, personnel and their families. I think if we looked at payday lending closely, you'd find that payday lenders target uh, women 
at a higher level. And certainly that's, those are who, those, those are people who I see coming into our doors that are disproportionately affected by see, payday but that's, lending. But what you just said is interesting because the way to speak to the issue of payday lending may be to talk about everybody in effects, including members of the military, and that way you may you may get people listening to your argument who wouldn't listen if you're just talking about poor black women. We thought that that would work. I think we were all hoping, some of us who were advocating for um, 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 better laws around petty lending, hoped that when the when legislation was passed restricting um, petty lending in the military, that that would carry over. Uh, and I think you'll find that military, uh, that the, the elected officials are very eager to stand up and wrap themselves in the flag. but. When the issues get beyond that, it doesn't carry over necessarily. Terry? Well, first, in terms of political leadership, I hope that we get to the point of critical mass where all the candidates are women and we aren't speaking of them as the woman candidate and feeling that people are making these false choices about do I identify with somebody because they are a woman or not. You know, the, the Clinton Foundation is uh, thrives on creative partnerships, and I think Part of making sure people hear is a lot of different people making their voices heard, but also really thinking about who are your champions. Are there CEOs that can really be innovative in their approach to changing their company so that women can thrive and that they don't have to off-ramp or that they are able to feed their families? Are there nonprofits we can work with who have some really new ideas? It's, it's not about a single piece of legislation. It's about a culture change. So I, I tend to think we might have a big shared bubble above our head. Perhaps how are we talking or not talking to ourselves as a country? And, and when I think about this, um, you know, I do think it's very powerful to start with what brings us together versus what divides us. And even for us, where like I wake up every day thinking about low-income families, and if I'm talking to low-income mothers or fathers of any race and ethnicity, single, married, what have you, they, are, they say, don't single me out. Don't single me out. And because we were, you know, we're thinking about we want to test, we want to focus, and then know how are we all moving forward together. And I think for the first time in our country, um, there is research and data that says that no matter where you sit on the economic ladder, no matter sort of man, woman, um, race, or um, race or ethnicity, that we don't think it's going to be better for the next generation. So that's like a moment to rally. And so I think sometimes how are and sort of going to a practical piece. What's the problem you're trying to solve? And to Terry's piece, how are we bringing in multi-sectors? You know, the nonprofit world is great for innovation. We've had this sort of social contract. I think we need to tune it up a little bit where, you know, there was innovation out there in the field. Philanthropy put a little fuel in there. And then we have this really logical relationship with government and it all go to scale and be done, you know, sort of effectively. But there is a yearning for people that want to be part of solutions. And I think bringing that together, and, and you know, some of the work we focus on um, at the Institute right now is really looking at how do you align systems and strategies to help children and parents together. Just, and we think about a gender lens, we think about racial equity. But when we've talked with people about that's what we're trying to solve, here's the data that underlines why. Here's the voice and the potential, and then here is some solution. So you really break it down. We've actually had a pretty good um, response from both R's and D's, old and young, about wanting to sort of see my part. Not everybody's there, but the vast majority, because they see the problem and they see a chance to move a lever. And um, it's, it's interesting. I do find that in Washington, people do agree on, so, on solutions more often than they agree on how to get to yep. the solution. And that's the problem. But I do want to look forward, because um, one of the interesting challenges for all of us, it's one thing to spend all of your energy and your time thinking about how to fix the problems now. It's another thing to think about how do you fix the problems so our daughters 
in this case are not struggling with the same questions some years from now. Uh, we all have children in our lives. My goddaughter is in the room. We all want them to not deal with this anymore. We want this to be something that we dealt with, or at least we addressed. But, but we're stuck. So, if we, if, assuming we can get ourselves unstuck, and that it involves the involve the engagement of not only women but men who see creating this new. Uh, platform as a way of getting us to the next step. So our daughters are dealing with a whole new set of problems, hopefully. Where do we, where do we begin? I was very uh, pleased to be invited to be a part of this conversation. And I think that's important. You've got to bring men into discussion. Um, educate us. Um, I think hear what our, uh, our opinions are around these issues because until things balance out and, 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 and uh, you're still going to have men disproportionately in decisions in, in, in decision making positions. Um, we need to step up and recognize that issues that we typically look at as women's issues, um, uh, family leave, um, uh, flexible work schedules, are not necessarily women's issues. Those are important strategies for making our companies more productive, making our own lives as men more, uh, uh, more, more manageable. And so I think there are a lot of um, conversation, bringing men into conversation can, 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 can shift the, can move the needle a bit and, and, and make some of these issues less women's issues and make them, as you said, national security or economic, um, uh, broader economic um, uh, strategy issues. Jerry. So we, we need to show the data. We need to show where we are. We need to listen to the stories. We need to hear from everybody, men, women, boys, and girls, about what they think their challenges are to overcoming uh, uh, the ceilings or the women and, and girls in their lives are, too. And we really need to respond after listening to those conversations, and we hope that we will be able to do so. Yeah, I mean, I, can't, I don't think we can underscore enough the power of listening. And one piece that we did um, uh, in the recent was uh, part of this uh, focus group effort. We talked to um, young men and women, and again, in high school and in middle school. And what we um, asked, uh, especially the high school boys, what, if, what, the, what advice would they give to a younger sister and a younger brother to see how it would differ from how they were seeing the next generation? And it was actually like 95% the same just a little bit more, make sure you are respected. And that was what they said for their sisters as well for their mothers. Mm. And it was very powerful. And, and when I think, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I feel like there's, I'm in a middle spot. I have a um, kid going into ninth grade and a kid going into seventh grade. And my husband and I have traded off. I'm one of those lucky Cheryl Sandbergs. I got a good one. Thank God. Who knows why? Um, but he has supported me. I would, there are times he stepped, he stepped out. He moved to Michigan with me to go work at the Kellogg Foundation. He took, stepped off his career. Um, and, but it's also hurt his career. It has hurt his career because he stepped out. And we're whatever age we are, um, 49. Ugh, I think I'm uh, <laughs> But when I think about my daughter who's 14 and my son who's 11, I know that they're going to be looking at a world where it's 50-50 and how do we go forward. And so, like, family leave. And I want to just make sure on family leave, like, some of us in this room, we have a kid, we, we probably get to do some sort of family leave. There are so many low-income mothers 
who are literally, and fathers who are making those crazy, scary, frightening decisions because they're going to lose their job, which will take the whole house of cards down um, um, and painful pieces. But things like family leave and child care, those are, that, that matters just as much to Bill as it does to me. And I do think there are some chances with that next generation that they're going to look at the world and ex- expect different things. We've set aside a little bit of time here for your questions, and we have some people with microphones. If you'll wait till somebody with a microphone gets to you, this gentleman here and then the woman in the back. different angle. Um, I've been a psychiatrist for 40 years and practice uh, psychiatry in U.S., in Florida, and I listen to men and women. They work in various different levels, from uh, blue-collar to, um, to corporate, high corporate. What I hear is both men and women, they prefer men bosses. And they feel, and I have kind of anecdotally asked this question many times from different people. They all prefer uh, to have a male boss rather than a female boss. And they, they say okay. that female bosses are very difficult to deal with. Well, you know, and Judy I'm Woodruff my, and I have a f- female bosses, so I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think anybody would say it to our face, but I see your point. And I wonder if anybody here wants to tackle that. So it's a challenge. I think we are fortunate because we work in partnership on this particular initiative with the Gates Foundation, and we were at an event with Melinda Gates recently who talked about being promoted as a senior manager at Microsoft, and she didn't know what to do. And she looked around and said, oh, there are three other women in senior management here. I'll try to be like them. So she tried on the first style, then she tried on the second, then she tried on the third, then realized you need to be yourself as a leader. I think there is such a bright light shining on so few women leaders. There is enormous stress in terms of productivity, in terms of um, uh, achieving in whatever way you believe that you are going to achieve, because there are so few models. Yeah, and I, I, oh, and I, one thing I, did, I just think I am not familiar with that research, and I, I, I think the stress factors and there's probably there's obviously great truth to that. I also think there's research that looks at also women entrepreneurs and how they grow their businesses that also looks at some, uh, there's a body of research that also looks at some sort of women entrepreneurs and CEOs that also do provide more flexibility, um, do have different um, sort of percentages of offering benefits. So I, I just, I think there's maybe a mixture of research out there. Can I just say, I have worked for only women bosses <laughs> my entire career. They have all been extraordinary. So that's my experience. The woman in the very... I'm sorry, could you, she was next, back in the back with the aqua. Thank you for your comments. I'm a full-time attorney, and I have two children, ages two and three. And um, I had my first child when I worked as an attorney for the Securities and Exchange Commission for the federal government, and my second working for Charles Schwab as in-house counsel. And I've never had a paid maternity leave. And while my family got through that, I can't help but think about the lower income communities, and the women who are the sole parent in their household. And my question is, can you talk more about the impact of that on those communities? And also, what is the prospect for a policy change? Go at it. Well, you go first, since you worked on the bill. (laughs) I I, I mean, Anne just glided over very quickly the... um, 
some of the consequences. I, I, having to make those choices day to day and the horrible mm -hmm. stories you hear every day about that dire choice between having to care for your child who is sick and going to work, it's, it's, this is not the country we want to be. It's, it's very disappointing. Um, that said, I, I am, I am not. Sh I, I know that we will. Uh, there is a lot of support for paid leave, um, and we want to do everything we can to make sure that happens. It's not the environment right now, I believe, in our federal government uh, that is going to pass it. So it's a moment where there, there are voices that really need to be heard. It can't be the, the low-income people who are dealing with these consequences every day. It needs to be advocates like all of us who are constantly reminding people what the consequences are. Um, I'm really glad you asked that question. I appreciate you sort of putting yourself in it. Um, because this is one where um, it's crazy. I mean, the, the impact, I mean, just if you're someone, like, you're going to lose your job, lose your house, or, you know, take care of a sick kid, um, you know, the stories, especially in the summer, they're crazy. They, 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 you, get the, you hear the stories each summer about a struggling working parent who has to leave a child in that car. And everybody's aghast, but they don't know what is actually, I mean, that's like the worst of the worst. But this stuff is very real. And so there's a piece where there are male allies, but I really put a call out to us women. And us women who have made it to actually, because we'll figure out some freaking way to get it done. But really, where is the political will of the women who have made it to get really angry, to get really smart, and start shifting the dialogue? And there's a piece on pay equity where sometimes, you know, pay equity is kind of like the poster child um, uh, um, issue on, on some of this discussion. And it's a frankly more complicated one that's out there. But it's, you know, just the headline, 70 cents to the man's dollar. And if you're a Latina, it's 55. So that's enough to get you pissed off. But... Um, but I was just in a session with Rosa DeLore, and she's like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. She can't do it alone. And, and she can't do it alone. And so there's like, how do we put the pressure there? But then when we also get down to the states where the first family law was actually passed, exactly. for the first time in Minnesota, just like a month ago, they did this rocking bipartisan Women's Economic Security Act that said on pay equity, they had like five points to it. But one of it I just loved the most was they said, if you're going to get any public government money, your company must sign a pay equity pledge that says you have done the due diligence or go to jail or you're, you know, there's going to be consequences that you are paying people equitably, you are looking at it through a race and a gender lens so that there's real teeth. And so my point is, I think we all need to step up as women, men as well, but I think women, we should own this in the next election cycle. Um, and then we should also think about how we can really move stuff robustly at the, in the, the national debate. But let's start going on the states and be That's, really specific. Yeah, That's what you, I was going to say. If there's been any process, progress on any issues or any movement on any issues, even ones you disagree with, it's been on the state level in the past several years. I want to get as many questions as, in as possible. Right? Okay. Uh, hi. Um, I wondered if you could comment a little bit, you know, with women now, half of all working women earn less than $31,000 a year, maybe nationally. And if you could comment in that light about um, just the whole issue of care, paid caregiving and what we're going to do about the tremendously low wages that uh, caregivers make, and sort of what's your sense of, I think this is a real dilemma that doesn't have quite the roadmap that we do maybe on paid sick time and, and paid family leave. Do you see well, any roadmap the, developing on this? Well, and the dilemma is that as we all age, there are going to be more and more paid ca caregivers all underpaid. Who, who wants to speak to that, Bill? Um, I, I think that there's a 
an increased, not adequate, recognition that there is a significant grain of, of, of America. You know, to your point, it's all getting um, older and this becoming more of an issue. I think I, I have less confidence that there'll be policy coming out of Washington to address these issues. Uh, I've seen much more effective action, not necessarily from the state level, but when the private sector recognizes that these issues are important to their bottom line. And I think that um, I think that CEOs more and more recognize that providing supports for families, providing adequate um, 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 uh, daycare uh, when, that's, when that's the case, Ad providing uh, leave that accommodates the needs of, of families, of, of diverse, increasingly diverse families, um, is I'm seeing more of that among the private sector. I think it gets, somebody gets bogged down when the politicians get involved, but no. but, but, <laughs> but but increasingly I, I'm seeing private um, CEOs weigh in and influence uh, um, policy decisions more so to, at the state level than it, at the it does have level. to be a bottom line uh, consequence, doesn't there? It, it does. Was anyone at the marketplace discussion last night? I just thought it was really interesting. There was a little bit of a discussion about domestic work and how it's not counted in GDP because it's just too difficult to measure. There are a lot of things that are difficult to measure. Maybe we can try a little harder. Yes, I was uh, taken by Anne's, two of Anne's comments. Uh, one about women who have made it and their responsibility and the other about the spigot because it mirrors exactly my feeling over the last 25 years. We have invested a tremendous amount of uh, money on uh, educational opportunity, not enough, but a tremendous amount. We have invested tremendous effort and uh, money on the reformation of our business practices to give avenues and platforms for access. But what have we invested in pushing from the bottom up? What structures exist at the bottom to push women and others up there, have to, there has to be some kind of a floor below which nobody can fall, and we have, to be, we have to create a structure, it seems to me, and I'd like your comments on it. We have to create a structure that enables all of us to, at, the, at, a, at a grassroots level, to be pushing that elevator from the bottom up. Otherwise, that spigot never gets filled. Well, I appreciate, your, um, I appreciate your comment and your question. I think um, two thoughts. One, when we, and I, I, I love the fact that you're saying, let's just put the floor and therefore leave no one behind. Um, and I think that's something we could we sort of need to reaffirm to. I don't know if we're all on that same page as a country, but I'm with you. Um, and so actually one of, we, part of what I do at the Aspen Institute is I have this fantastic team that scans the country for where there's innovations and opportunities. And so actually we're seeing some states in the West in Montana, Washington, and Utah, that are actually fundamentally thinking, thinking, rethinking through um, policy levers like unemployment insurance, TANF, sometimes known to others like as welfare reform, temporary assistance to needy families, both actually through a lens of looking at how it's going through um, women, low-income families, and tribal communities. And so, how do we update those systems for families? Are and I think that would be kind of a floor-up strategy. The other piece is I think really pushing to kind of get better at things like. There's nothing better than a good job. Nothing better than a good job. And so when I think, you know, in workforce I've served on, I'm, I'm like one of these dogged optimists. I served on uh, Governor Romer's first uh, 
Workforce Investment Board to um, for um, also um, in the District of Columbia. But um, we're seeing some new models, like in Alabama, which you know down in the South, there's some real challenges and 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 and, and real structural needs. But um, there's the Women's Foundation of Alabama is partnering with Walgreens. Walgreens has a need saying we don't have enough qualified pharmacists. So working with the Women's Fund of, um, of Alabama, they are doing a partnership with child care centers and Head Start centers to look at mothers who are ready to go, ready to roll with some um, focused child care, some extra kind of coaching and life skills to put them through an accelerated program that um, puts them on a track for a job so when they graduate, um, kids going into um, elementary school sort of really ready, mom's on a track for a job um, that really has a future. So I'm seeing sort of different innovations like that, but I think you're right, what are the big policy levers, and then where are we challenging some systems to kind of step it up? I sat through a presentation pretty powerful this morning by Lawrence Lessig talking about you know, the corruption in our elections and how essentially there's two elections, a green election first where 150,000 people get to decide who we vote for and the rest of us get to vote for one of those people. And then when you talk about, uh, you know, women needing to change, to make our voices heard at the polls, I'm thinking, well, I just heard that I have no voice at the poll. And so I guess I'm curious um, where you see election reform and whether it's influencing those 150,000 people to vote for our issues or is it to blow up the whole system and let's actually make our voices really heard? I'd love to hear what you think. Do you get to hear Gwen's answer on that? Yeah. <laughs> Blow it up. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Terry? Oh my. I. You know. I. I think. Yeah. I think that. I think we need to do some. Make some serious change. Um, we are. We are not the best country when we are looking at specific special interests having more control over how the country is run, you know, and, and um, who pays for elections is a really big part of that. So um, I, we also need to do a much better job of civic engagement and making people understand how deeply their vote matters because not done Sorry. that. Sorry. Wasn't me, I swear. <laughs> uh, maybe it was. Okay, another question? Hi. I do believe that family security is a national security issue. And with that as the framework, we talked about structural problems that um, we have in our nation. And I think, you know, I'm, so I'm a mom of four, and I've worked full-time. I've worked part-time. I've stayed at home, kind of rotating through that cycle, depending on uh, the different stages of my kids. And um, I'm thinking about child care, but I'm also thinking about the fact that school just goes from nine to three, and that makes it really difficult to work till five. <laughs> and that child care is so expensive, especially if you want good child care. Um, preschool care is, you know, in some states available, in other states not. Um, so what can we do as individuals to rethink how we structure our day to make it possible for women to engage in the workforce? As, as, as a CEO and as an employer, I've tried to be as intentional as possible when we have vacancies to make sure that we are inclusive in our hiring at all levels of a company. I know that we often, uh, it's very easy to have blinders. I only know what I don't know. And, and um, to the extent that I can bring in voices and, and perspectives that 
um, help me make better decisions, that helps us perform better as a company. And so we've, uh, our workforce is more than half women. That certainly uh, I cannot uh, skate by on making decisions based just on my own opinion. They won't let that happen. Uh, and so I, I think that that's um, very important, not just at my level, but again, as we, uh, as individuals, we talked about civic engagement. I think we have to make sure that these conversations are not limited to very, very, very narrow perspectives. I know mine is, um, I don't have all the answers, and so it's important to folks who are making decisions. I think, um, I think, I think enlightened decision makers will broaden their perspective, but uh, we will broaden the, the the influences around them. But at the um, state legislatures, we've seen folks digging in their heels. Um, and restricting voting so that decisions are not as broad as they um, as they should be. So I think as 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 society, we have to weigh in and and just demand more of our elected officials. Um, we were hosting an event on on women and girls in STEM careers in Denver. Gosh, just last week, and I met this amazing woman named Lisa Goodby who runs her own engineering firm. And she was very invested in this issue and getting more young women in STEM careers. And I, during the course of our conversation, says, can I come visit your office? She said, well, no. The reason I've been able to retain so many great women over this long period of time is that everybody in our office, from admin to engineers, works from home. I thought, but you never hear this story. We need to hear, granted, her business is small, but we need to hear more of these stories and move away in this innovative economy from the jacket-on-the-chair culture to the recognition that we can have a, a full and holistic life that includes other commitments and responsibilities that make us better at our jobs. And it sounds like women have to lead in order for that to happen. I think that's a perfect place to end our conversation. Thank you all very much, and continue to have a good time at the Aspen Ideas Festival.